0: Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is John Evans. John is the CEO of Cambridge, Massachusetts-based Beam Therapeutics. The company was founded a little over three years ago to develop several types of DNA base editing developed in David Liu's lab at Harvard University along with an RNA-based editor platform developed by Feng Zhang at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. The gist of the idea, which John describes well, is that it's possible to make precise gene edits with an adapted form of CRISPR technology that doesn't need to cut out a whole disease-related gene. It can achieve a therapeutic goal by acting in an even more precise way, by finding an exact spot in the 3 billion base pair genome and modifying a single chemical base of DNA. Regular listeners of the long run may recall Kath Cathrecen of Verve Therapeutics discussing this technology, licensed from BEAM, as the basis for a PCSK9 gene editing therapy that offers the potential for a single shot that can dramatically drop LDL cholesterol for a lifetime. Verve is essentially aiming to eliminate the risk of death from heart attack or stroke by modifying a single nucleotide of DNA. Beam left that important indication to the experts in cardiovascular disease at Verve, partly because Beam has so many other fish to fry. It's putting different pieces of the technology puzzle together with different types of editing, different methods of delivery and thinking through how these combinations make the most sense for different therapeutic indications. For example, when does it make sense to do edits outside the body, ex vivo, and when is it better to do the edit inside the body, in vivo. The company's first two programs aimed for the clinic, Beam 101 and bm 102 are for sickle cell disease and beta thalassemia. It's heady stuff. As this matures and becomes closer to becoming a real thing that might become an FDA-approved product, it's likely to generate a lot of fear and controversy in the public. I asked John a bit about how he thinks about this issue and trying to get ahead of it toward the end of the conversation. Now before we get started, here's a word from the sponsor of The Long Run, Thermo Fisher Scientific. After almost a decade of being graced by your presence, my sense of wonder and admiration for you has not waned one bit. In fact, it has only grown. This is an excerpt from a love letter written by Leonardo to his cells. One of several incredible love letters written by amazing research scientists to give us a glimpse into the wonderment, the beauty, and the challenges of cell research. Join us in this exploration of a connection like no other part of the Love Your Cells campaign. Watch Leonardo read his amazing love letters at thermofisher.com slash gibco love your cells, all one word. I'll say it again. thermofisher.com slash gibco love your cells, all one word. And have you heard about DNA Script? DNA Script recently launched the Syntax system, the first ever benchtop enzymatic DNA printer which uses their proprietary enzymatic synthesis technology. The Syntax system prints DNA, on demand, right in the lab. Researchers simply import their sequences, and within hours the system synthesizes DNA oligos that can be used immediately in molecular biology and genomics workflows. DNA Script's enzymatic DNA synthesis emulates nature to overcome the drawbacks of the chemical-based methods traditionally used until now. Designed for fully automated walkaway synthesis, the Syntax system takes less than 15 minutes to set up with no special training to operate. With Syntax, researchers can accelerate discovery with DNA on demand. For more information on DNA Script, please visit www.dnascript.com. Now, please join me and John Evans on the long run. John Evans,
1: welcome to The Long Run. Great to be here, Luke. Thank you.
0: So, John, um, i like to start off with a little bit of biographical uh, context and perspective on where the guest comes from in each show. Uh, so, w- where are you from?
1: So, I'm from Connecticut. Uh, I grew up in Brookfield, Connecticut. Um, I uh, went to Yale as an undergrad. Um, I was an English major, actually. Uh, so I was going to be a poet, but luckily, um, got exposed to the farm industry pretty early. I actually had a job at Bayer Pharmaceuticals, uh, in West Haven, Connecticut, um, a temp job, uh, while I was in college and that sort of opened my eyes to this whole industry and really the rest of my whole career has been trying to get closer and closer to, to, to what I saw there and, and wanted to do more and more with, with new medicines.
0: Well, hold on here, John, Uh, an English major. Now, this is giving hope to all the humanities people out there who have been discouraged. Don't major in English. What do you want to be a cab driver or something? (laughs) Uh, Did you
1: hear that sort of thing coming up through school? Absolutely. No question about it. Um, But, yeah, you know, I mean, I think at the end of the day, as an English major, you learn how to tell stories, learn how things relate, uh, how people relate to each other um, and, and ultimately you know, it, just a great liberal arts education was, was great training. I, I do wish I had had a little more science early in my career um, in my education, but I've, I've managed to, to, to pick that up uh, over time and, and just love it and want to be closer and closer to it.
0: You mentioned poetry. Did you have a favorite writer or writers in those days?
1: Yes, I, I liked all, all the 20th century poets. Like Wallace Stevens was a, was a personal favorite of mine. Huh.
0: Okay. Okay. But you did a temp job. Uh, at this company buyer, and you figured out, hmm, this is interesting. What was it about that that, that captivated you?
1: Yeah, I was, so I was literally answering phones. Uh, I was I was a long-term sort of admin replacement, but I was working uh, for some people who were managing their hemophilia division. So they had uh, coate, this was um, blood-derived factor eight for hemophilia, and then cogenate was the recombinant uh, form of factor eight. And it was just amazing to see this business firsthand. It was still You know, blood-derived factor eight at the time. You know, this is the same um, product where there had been a lot of issues with AIDS being transmitted to hemophilia patients um, back in the '80s. Uh, In the late '90s, when I was there, they were worried about Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. Um, So there's there's lots of issues there. And then the recombinant. This is, of course, the you know earlier days of of recombinant biological products. And figuring out how to make these things in in, in large you know vats and in, in, in sophisticated manufacturing warehouses and and then of course just the impact these are having on patients around the world um, was really eye opening and so for me you know rather than maybe go to law school which is what most liberal arts uh, majors might do uh, I ended up thinking that that working for this industry as part of my career would be would be ideal.
0: Uh-huh. And this didn't really occur to you coming up through K-12 or, uh, you know, your, your broader exposure as an undergrad at Yale. It was it was really that job.
1: Yeah. I, you know, we did we didn't have a lot of doctors in my family. I actually was not that exposed to it. Um, my father was in science. He was actually in robotics um, and, and physics. And so uh, I knew a little bit about technology and about about starting companies, but but never on the on the biological side. So this was just a really fortunate accident and very happy it happened.
0: Huh? Huh? So, what was your next
1: step? You you decided to go get an MBA? Is that right? Yeah. So, I actually worked at McKinsey, um, and I went and I said, oh. sort of, where's pharma? You know, because I really had this great experience. And so, I ended up going to the New Jersey office uh, and did nothing but pharma work for a few years. Uh, then I went to the Wharton Healthcare Program uh, for my MBA, and actually did do a master's in biotechnology while I was there. So that's where I picked up a little more formal training in the science. Uh, interned at Medimmune and just loved it. I just never looked back. Um, and, um, and then from there, I I sort of had figured out at that point that I, I loved the industry, but also that I wanted to be closer and closer to the science and started to form the idea that the smaller companies and the more research oriented projects seemed more interesting to me. Uh, and so that's when I began to turn myself towards biotech. And, and so that was, you know, a really, um, important move. And so I think from there, you know, a lot of my career steps were just getting, smaller and smaller and closer and closer to the science as I went.
0: But now, being a non-scientist, not having a PhD, what was your entry point?
1: Yeah, so for biotech, um, so coming out of McKinsey, um, I actually just, you know, another fortunate accident, I had interviewed uh, Stelios Papadopoulos while I was uh, at uh, Wharton, uh, and he was, of course, a famous, you know, banker, you know, you know, leader in the industry, And um, and so when I was looking for a job uh, in Cambridge in biotech, um, because we were we were moving up here, me and my wife, um, the he said, well, you really should go talk to the folks at Infinity. And I would have I was looking at Biogen and Vertex and Genzyme and sort of the bigger companies. And so it was really that personal connection. And so I went and met uh, Steve Holtzman and Julian Adams and Adeline Perkins at Infinity and the Jazz Cafe and uh, just totally fell in love with it. And again, it was much smaller a company than I thought I would normally have gone to. But I just couldn't resist the culture and the vision and the, the excitement of, of a company that size and and jumped in with two feet. So what was it about the culture? Just, you know, as you get smaller, it, things move more quickly. You get to see more how it all integrates together. I mean, of, of course, you know, in a larger company, you get to see a lot as well. But but for me, that 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 smaller place where you get to know everybody, you can see really clearly how the science links to creating value, uh, and then you you have to then on the business side use that to raise money and then make smart investment decisions, and then un- underneath all of that is a culture and an organization around of, of people um, that has to be really carefully built and, and maintained and, and infinity. We really, we really worked hard on that. There was some amazing talent that went through that, that company. This is back in the 2006, 2008 range. Uh, and, and I think it was a real testament to, to the, to the culture that got built there. And so, so for me, just seeing all that integration come together and all in the service of, of creating new medicines for patients who are in really sore need of, of new options was, was incredibly inspiring.
0: Now, how big was infinity in those days?
1: Probably 150.
0: Okay. So this is what I guess you would call a, a mid-stage, and it was publicly traded at the time.
1: Yes, I actually joined right as they were going public, um, initially in an investor relations role, actually. Um, I, I basically said to Steve, I'll, I'll do anything you want, um, and that was an open role. I said, great, let's do it. Uh, so I did that for a while, I did a little bit of business development, and then actually spent most of my time as a, as a program leader uh, for their Lead HSP90 program. Uh, it was in phase one, so just as you said. So this was about a five-year-old company when I joined uh, sort of clinical stage and then helped um, you know advance that program uh, to later stages of development.
0: But for a young guy, this is a really interesting moment in time. I mean, you're interacting with senior management, as you mentioned, Steve and Julian and Adeline, like uh, great well-known people. Uh, you're working on important programs for cancer. You're interacting with Wall Street. Uh, this is really quite an education.
1: Well, and this is for me the the value of going to smaller places because you, you just get to learn so much more quickly. And one of the themes for me is I really believe that biotech is an apprentice model. You have to see it done, you have to see how leaders make choices. And then you have to live it and see how those choices work out. And then through doing that, you, you build up a, a you know, a, a system of knowledge about how to do this yourself. And so for me, the smaller end of the industry, the biotech side is the place where you get the most of that. And so it was really just an incredibly rich and immersive learning experience because you get to see all of that again, how it comes together. And then you feel that much more prepared to do it yourself later.
0: That's great. So this is your first job. Uh, then you move to Agios. How did that happen?
1: Yeah. So, you know, the other important learning about biotech is how network driven it is. And of course, I knew I was coming to Cambridge biotech, but but much more important than that was within Cambridge. What were the networks I was joining? And I had no idea of this. But of course, a lot of the folks at Infinity had been at Millennium in in the 90s and the rest of those people had gone on to start Third Rock. And so I had sort of inadvertently fallen into the Third Rock uh, orbit. And so I knew the Third Rock folks fairly well. Um, and they, you know, so I, I was at Infinity for three years. The, the program I was leading failed in phase three. That was, of course, a, a big learning experience for me. Um, but, of course, you know, does happen. And I think was it was important to see that uh, firsthand. So I was sort of ready for the next challenge. And right at that time, Adios was starting up. It was a fund one company from Third Rock. Uh, so I talked, of course, to the Third Rock team. And then and then David Shankine and Duncan Higgins were just just coming on board and so I, I jumped in. And, and again, now this was there's probably 20 people in the company, less than a year old. When I joined, I was I was the sort of second business person after Duncan. And um, really, with the job was to build it, build it from scratch and, and to you know establish the, the business strategy, help the pipeline move forward. And, and, you know, it was an amazing experience.
0: Uh-huh. Business development
1: that was your role? Yeah, the role was BD. Um, and so I certainly did a lot of that. We actually did the, the kind of famous Agio Celgene deal. This is in 2010, uh, where we got $130 million up front. That was unprecedented at the time. Um, and really was a remarkable alliance where there's an incredible amount of trust on both sides. You know, that was George Gombeski and Tom Daniel on the other side of that. Um, and so I led that alliance for uh, really all the time I was at I was at Agios uh, about eight years. We ended up doing a, a 2.0 version of that deal in 2016, actually, because uh, it was so successful. And um, and that pr- um, uh, collaboration launched the the IDH inhibitors, uh, which which came out of Agios. Um, and and then at the, at the same time, I always did also still have this R and D role. Um, so I, I had done program leadership at. At Infinity, I did it again at Agio, so I helped start the rare disease group um, along with Michael Sue, and so we worked on that together, and that actually has a, a drug now um, that is nearing the market for kinase deficiency. Um, and then later in my career at Agio, so I actually went back to the IDH side and was again a kind of program leader and executive sponsor for the IDH programs as they went from basically phase one proof of concept through approval in AML.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. OK, so your career, you know, it, it went on an upward trajectory as Agios grew and, and became more diversified and you, know, you had a hand in, in that strategy. But I want to come back to the Celgene deal and why that was so important, because this is 2010, as you said, uh, this was still biotech recession. I mean, it seems so long ago, people, <laughs> but there, it was. And uh, it was hard for startup companies to raise money and, uh, and and do part to bargain from a position of strength with partners. What did you, uh, why, could you talk a little bit more about why that partnership was so important with Celgene and, and how that influenced your thinking about business development?
1: Absolutely. So so this was very much, I mean, I had come out of, you know, Infinity, which was still in a rocky kind of public markets environment. And then Agios, remember, this was a big vision. We were going after cancer metabolism. So this was finding new targets and we were going to drug them from scratch. So this was going to be a long, risky, expensive proposition. And so, how you bridge that gap from that vision to real drugs and where you get the money to do that was really an unsolved problem and you couldn't look to the capital markets for it. And so really we had to think about BD. And I think if we hadn't been able to do that kind of a Celgene deal where that amount of capital came in early, we would have just had to be much more narrow in our focus. You know, you you, you take two or three targets and you develop some drugs and you hope for the best, but with the Celgene deal, and it was great that they shared this vision, we suddenly had the capital to go after a much bigger pool of targets and really run a big platform funnel to, to identify the best targets out of out of that group. And and that was, you know, really important and enabling. And I think, you know, it was a big reason why in sort of the, the, the first wave of targets that, that came out of Agios that, you know, we've had several drugs.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. You and others on the senior management team could uh, be a little more bold um, planning for the future rather than honing in on just that one thing that you hope and pray fingers
1: crossed will make it through phase two, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you remember those were, those were dark days. I, I I think it's important that people know their history in biotech and, and it was tough. You know, I think in many ways, Third Rock gets a lot of credit for being that bold and that visionary during that era. I mean, it was, it was, it's really remarkable. Um, and, and, and in many ways, I think that this also, Foreshadows, you know, which we'll get to later. My my time at Beam now, which is again a kind of huge platform effort, and I think for me, I, I just am drawn to that scale of thinking. I, I I like having that many possibilities in front of me, uh, and then the challenge of how do we how do we unlock that over time. Okay, so uh, you left Agios around when was this? 2016, 17. So it was 2017, and so I'd been there for eight years. It was an amazing run. Uh, I learned so much um, from David and the entire team there, um, and so I I ended up uh, joining Arch uh, as a venture partner, actually, uh, as my next step. Um, I had I had sort of known the Third Rock folks, I'd known a lot of the different venture groups, and and had some conversations with all of them. But but actually, Arch, you know, Bob Nelson had been on our board at Agios f- since the beginning as well, and so I'd really gotten to know him, and I just I just loved the way Arch thinks about building companies you know that really taking a long term view seeking out disruptive technologies trying to build for the long term building public companies building great organizations and taking risk and and you know that's that's unusual in in some some areas of of the the venture and the startup community and, and it really it really resonated with me um, and so between Bob and Christina Burrow and Steve Gillis, you know, I, I obviously you know joined Arch as a venture partner. There's a few different things in view uh, that I was going to work on during the course of 2017, uh, which I was excited about. Um, one of them was Beam, and so you know, base editing, and 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 that was already a little bit in in the in in the scope for me, um, but but did several other things during that year. And, and it, was a, it was a great year, although pretty much by the end of the year, I, I I had done enough with Beam that I ended up becoming a full-time CEO there.
0: Now, was the understanding that you would, you know, look at a, a variety of startup opportunities and sort of like an entrepreneur in residence, like maybe you find something that Arch really wants to invest in and you'll go run it. Was
1: that the understanding or like that you'll kind of hang out in the bullpen for a while and figure out what you'll do? I mean, one of the great things about Arch is there really are no rules and there are very few expectations other than do cool stuff, as, as Bob always says. Um, and so um, so it was really up to me. Uh, so I think, you know, for for a period, I think I had had a long operational run. It was really nice to work on on several different things. Ended up working with the Vividian team on an early deal they did. Um, I did some work Um the, the sort of in the AI space that, that became something that, and Citro uh, became, um, and then and then helped build Beam. I think for me it was more trying to figure out what I what I was ready to do next, and and that's where I think ultimately you know um, Beam sort of just grew and grew, and and I was just and we can talk about that. I was, I was just so fascinated by the technology and by the potential impact. Uh, so working with David Liu, working with Feng Zhang and Keith Jung, the other founders, and then obviously Bob. And Steve Knight at F Prime, um, you know, I love the team. And then as we started to grow the team and grow the culture, I could see how special it was, both in terms of technology, but also in terms of, of the people we were working with. And so, so that was enough for me. Uh, you know, I do think I'm at the end of the day an entrepreneur and an operator, and just want to build things. And so it was, it was certainly a great fit. And so I think it was by the end of 2017, I was sitting down with Bob and saying, you know, I, I think I got to do this one, and uh, and he was, of course, very supportive.
0: OK, well, let's back up just a little bit with some of the context here, because, you know, 2016, I think David Liu publishes the first article on base editing. Uh, and of course, I think it was 2015 that CRISPR itself was science's breakthrough of the year. So CRISPR and Intelia and Editas had all been funded to, you know, uh, prominent dollars and big people involved. And there was the patent dispute all this stuff was going on, um, and this paper comes out that says there's a different way to do CRISPR editing, maybe a better mousetrap. What, what was it about that science at that moment in time that captivated the Arch team of Prime and you?
1: Yeah, it's a great background. So, so there had been a lot happening. I mean, really, you know, right at the end of 2012, of course, is the famous Doudna paper. And then 2013, you know, between Feng Zhang and others, they're, they're applying them in mammalian cells. And, and then over those coming years, you had Editas and Intelia and CRISPR Therapeutics. Of course, yes, the patent battles and, and things like that. So there was an incredible amount happening. I was really unaware of most of it, I will, I will admit. Um, I wasn't following the field that closely. Um, but I, you know, Bob had the relationship with David. Um, I was interested in actually some, other, some other technology of David's, and so I got to know David as well. Through that, and, and they said, you should really should look at this base editing paper. And so I did. What really struck me, and it turns out to be the, the really important thing about the technology, right, is the following. So, so all of those first-gen tools with CRISPR, but it's also true for zinc fingers and talons, you know, which go back even farther, they, they've solved a really important problem in gene editing, right? So that what they figured out is how do I target a single location in the genome? and and know I'm going to go there, when all I have to work with are four different letters in random sequences, right? Um, and that's an amazing thing they can do, right? You have three billion bases in the cell, and you're going to find one address of about 20 bases long. I mean, that is an, an amazing breakthrough. The, the problem is, once you get there, the only thing these tools can do is cut. So they basically just cleave the DNA. And so the, the analogy that is often used is that of scissors for the genome, right? And this is, of course, going to trigger a reaction in the cell, but mostly it's a, it's a reaction that the cell doesn't want that break to be there. And so it, as quickly as possible, puts the pieces back together again, but it does so with mistakes and damage. And so you get these sort of random sort of gene changes at that spot, and that will turn off genes. And so it's pretty good at knocking stuff out. It's much more difficult to use it to sort of repair genes or reprogram genes in a rational way. And I, I think, so I think, in a way, although there was incredible hype. In those early days of CRISPR, and you're on the cover of Time magazine and all of that, I think it was a little far ahead of where the technology really was. And that's, of course, not too unusual in the history of technology. But what David Liu and some scientists in his lab kept thinking about is, well, there must be a more elegant and precise way to do this. And so what they came up with, and it was a couple of key scientists, Alexis Comer, was the 2016 paper initiating this, and then Nicole Godelli, who's actually now at Beam, uh, followed up with an A base editor. Um, What they just defined is, is what if we use CRISPR to target the genome same exact targeting ability that CRISPR has that is so powerful but we don't use it to edit instead it lands there and the edit is made by a second component which is basically a chemical enzyme which naturally recognizes a single kind of base and turns it from one to the other and so now you can basically reprogram a gene sequence changing just one letter at that site but you don't you didn't have to break the chromosome you didn't have to cut the DNA or lose control of what that code says and so that for me was the was the was the the thing that really got my imagination going and I I literally couldn't sleep the night I, I was thinking about this because suddenly you think about, well, what are all the things I could do if I could just rewrite one letter in the genome? And you say, well, I could fix point mutations, which are just single letter misspellings. I could tell genes to turn off by just rewriting a certain codon as a stop codon with a single C to T change. So almost the, the feeling of it as a computer language now, where we can actually go in and just retype a single letter and, and know exactly the change in the instructions that is gonna result in that gene. And, and then just thinking across the whole genome, all the ways we could potentially use that. I think that for me was the, was the real power. And, and so it is just a more precise, um, controlled way of doing high efficiency gene editing that, that doesn't need the double-stranded breaks that are inherent in those older systems.
0: So, you're not doing a double stranded break. You bring the CRISPR into that specific address, as you say. It it has a guide enzyme, Cas something or other. There's a variety of them. But then there's also this other piece. And can can you elaborate just a little bit on this? It's a deanimase that does it sort of like it flips the A to a G or a C to a T. H- how does that happen?
1: Yeah, it's even, it's even less than a flip, actually. So it's called a deaminase, yep. And so, so literally, for the chemists in the audience, this is a chemical reaction on the genome. And so that's what deaminases do. They, they modify the chemistry of either RNA or DNA bases across the cell for a variety of different purposes. And again, this is all a natural process. And so literally, if you think about it, the, the Watson-Crick base pairing uh, of A and T and C and G is, is driven by chemistry that bonds in a certain way. And so two of those bases, uh, the C for cytidine and then the A for adenosine, uh, have amine groups on them. And that's just part of the, the recognition structure of that base. If you deaminate that group, if you literally just cleave off the amine group, uh, you get a different base that will pair differently and that will therefore carry different information. And so the, all, these, all these enzymes do is... Uh, depending on which one you use, it'll either look for an A or a C and it'll just literally remove that one bond uh, taking the amine group off the base and that base will now be read differently by the cell. It'll either, you know, if it's an A, it'll now be read as a G or if it was a C, it'll now be read as a T and, and, it, and that's it. And then you let go uh, and that's a permanent change uh, and you don't need to, you know, cleave the DNA in two uh, in order to have that happen. Uh, and, and, and also because it's chemistry You know, one of the other issues with some of the earlier forms of CRISPR is some of the ways that we we want to use those enzymes involve very complicated repair pathways that may or may not be active in cells at the right time. Cells often need to be dividing for that to happen. There's a lot of complexity there. Here, it's all biochemistry. Once it's in the cell, it's going to go to the nucleus. It's going to search the genome for the spot that it needs to target that is driven by a guide RNA, just as you said. It's going to open the DNA up. The deaminase will find its target base within a very narrow window um, where we know know, every time it'll happen, and then this this chemical reaction occurs. And so all of that is biochemistry, which means that we don't really care what cell type, dividing or non-dividing, it'll it'll happen, and it happens very efficiently, and it's tunable in in much the same way that chemistry is tunable. So it's it's actually quite predictable how this all occurs.
0: So what's another um, advantage of this approach compared with the call it first generation, where you're getting that cutting, the double strand cut. You said a lot of rearrangement is occurring. Maybe we didn't fully appreciate that back then in the halcyon early days, but what do we see now? Like, Are, are we seeing immune type reactions or just uh, what are you av- avoiding
1: yeah. And, and, and look, I'm the first to say that I think there are, there's a room for all tools in the gene editing landscape. And I actually think the CRISPR tools are, are working great for what what they can do, which, which, is, which is clear. Um, so if you want to knock out a single gene, again, a, a CRISPR nuclease can do it. Uh, and, and, and that's what Intelli is doing, obviously, in, in CRISPR therapeutics and others. Um, so where we have significant advantages. So one would be something like a point mutation repair, right? That's a, that's a canonical thing we do. So this would be things like sickle cell anemia, where every patient has the same single letter misspelling uh, and we, in a coding region of the gene, and we wanna fix that and turn that back to normal. Or alpha one antitrypsin deficiency, same thing. Every patient has this one letter misspelling in their liver that causes this horrible liver and lung disease um, because they can't make the right protein. So, Using a nuclease to cut and try to fix that is incredibly difficult and so difficult that it really hasn't progressed even in the last, you know, six or seven years. Whereas for us, it's very simple. We're just going to land there and we're going we're to change that one letter back to something that's normal. So we're, you know, order of magnitude more efficient doing that than, than, than previous tools. Um, you know, other applications include things like cell therapy. So it turns out in cell therapy like CAR-T, you want to make a lot of edits and you want to make the cells algenic. you want to make them more effective, avoid the immune system. But every one of those new edits, if you're making them simultaneously with a nucleus, all of those double-stranded breaks adding up together at the same time are a real problem. And they create lots of genomic changes and cell toxicity. Whereas with the base editor, because we don't make that double shredded break, we can add as many edits as we want and we don't worry about that. And so we have a, a product going to the clinic now for a pediatric leukemia, which has four edits at the same time. It's a, it's the first quad edited cell in the industry. Uh, and frankly, we can go much higher than that. Um, as much as, as the biology will tell us we, we want to keep making edits. Um, and you know, even, even head to head with new for things like knocking out genes, or activating genes. Um, you know, base editors also probably have advantages there in some senses. They're very efficient. We get very high levels of editing. They're very potent. Uh, and, and again, you have, you have a lower incidence of any kind of larger scale genomic deletions or changes that can be um, that can happen with the with the double stranded break. So, so I think we're still early days and really fully exploring. Where base editing can take us, but but it is a very exciting kind of next generation technology, and we're we are increasingly confident that it's a potential best-in-class technology for for a lot of different applications.
0: Okay, let's get to those indications and how you choose them a little bit later. But uh, you're still now just building the company. How many people were actually there when you come in as, and, and were you the first CEO technically?
1: Yep, yep. So I was I was sort of um, the yeah the the founding CEO. Um, so, again, it was founded by David Liu and then also Keith Jung and Feng Zhang. So they were also obviously leaders in the field of Cas9 and gene editing in general. Um, and so I helped close the Series A. Uh, we did the initial license with Harvard. Uh, and then we started hiring. And so we brought in uh, a bunch of scientists initially from their labs, actually, um, sort of amazing scientists in many ways, you know, kind of competing to hire them to beam instead of not to go to another company, but to go to an academic post. I mean, these, these are all, you know, potential academics. Um, but they, they decided to sort of follow the technology and follow this vision. Um, and so I obviously was, was hiring them. Um, uh, and then early days we also brought in a a, a CSO. Uh, so this is Pino Charmella, um, who came to us from Moderna, where actually he was working on uh, all of the Moderna vaccines, including, uh, some of the early work that that prefigured the the coronavirus vaccine, by the way, quite obviously important now. Yes, we, <laughs> yes, he, he's a hero around here uh, for sure. Um, and um, anyway, so he you know he he brought in a lot of insights into how to build a big platform engine. Uh, you know, when I think about what Beam became, we had we had important components that I brought in from Agios. If you think about the culture of the of the place focus on people, focus on patients, and a certain instinct for, for doing precision medicine development. This is you know, very much from David Schenkine, thinking about how do we target to certain populations where we know what's wrong with them genetically, and we have a tool that can exactly reverse that back to normal. That's a drug that really ought to work, and if it works early, we ought to be able to get it to, to patients very quickly. Like Our IDH drugs at Agios, we got approved from IND to approval was about three and a half years each. Um, so, so that's something I'm very passionate about. But what I lacked that, that Pino brought was this idea of how do you build a, an engine and a platform to create these complex medicines? These are not small molecules. And so, issues of, you know, it's a totally new payload. Obviously, you know, gene editing, you know, base editing is a new form of that. Delivery is very challenging. You know, and how do we think about that? Manufacturing, process development, all of these things are, are very new. And, and so Pino brought a lot of that thinking over from Moderna. And so in some ways, I think I think of Beam as sort of a, an interesting merger of, of some threads from kind of Agios and Third Rock and then from, from Moderna as well and, and kind of coming together back to my point that I think ultimately Biotech is an apprentice model. It, you know, I think a lot about the sort of lineage uh, where we come from and what lessons we've been able to bring and what, what you know, what that's meant for, for building Beam.
0: After almost half a decade of being graced by your presence, my sense of wonder and admiration for you has not waned one bit. In fact, it has only grown. This is an excerpt from a love letter written by Leonardo to his cells. One of several incredible love letters written by amazing research scientists to give us a glimpse into the wonderment, the beauty, and the challenges of cell research. Join us in this exploration of a connection like no other, part of the Love Your Cells campaign. Watch Leonardo read his amazing love letters at thermofisher.com/slash/gibco love yourselves. And have you heard about DNA Script? DNA Script recently launched the Syntax System, the first ever benchtop enzymatic DNA printer, which uses their proprietary enzymatic synthesis technology. The Syntax System prints DNA on demand right in the lab. Researchers simply import their sequences, and within hours, the system synthesizes DNA oligos that can be used immediately in molecular biology and genomics workflows. DNA Script's enzymatic DNA synthesis emulates nature to overcome the drawbacks of the chemical based methods traditionally used until now. Designed for fully automated walkaway synthesis, the Syntax system takes less than 15 minutes to set up with no special training to operate. With Syntax, researchers can accelerate discovery with DNA on demand. For more information on DNA Script, please visit www.dnascript.com. It's a very competitive and fast-moving field. I mean, very much so. So, when you were thinking about risks, what rose to kind of the top of the list? Was it sort of like maybe we get too narrow and fall behind, or (laughs) how did you think about that?
1: A hundred percent. And and this is this is so. There's two two kinds of risks. You know, probably the the one right up front is will it work? Right. Again, these are very complicated medicines that have never really been done before. There, you know, there was definitely an advantage to us of to some degree, going second, right? So we could learn from some of the important lessons lessons that, you know, Editas and Telia and CRISPR had had pioneered, as well as Moderna and Alnylam and Bluebird and many of the other leaders in the genetic medicine space more broadly. So, you know, things like delivery really matters. And, and make sure that you have a diverse portfolio of different programs so that different ways that the editor might work can potentially win so that if some of them don't work, you have at least some that do. Um, And so that really drove our strategy early days to set up a a pretty broad portfolio. We we tripled down on delivery. Uh, We said, okay, we're gonna do any possible place where genetic medicines have been successfully delivered. We wanna bring base editors there and make that an option for patients. Uh, And so we're doing ex vivo programs, targeting blood cells and T cells. We're doing lipid nanoparticles to the liver. We're doing viral vectors like AAV to the eye and, and potentially other places, you know, all trying to stick to places where it was really well-precedented in terms of delivery. Um, but, but and then let the novelty be, be the payload, be the base editor. Um, and so that was really central to our strategy from the beginning was, was thinking about risk and thinking about how do we create optionality in this pipeline, given that there's, you know, so much we don't know. Um, you know, the other kind of risk, of course, is if we're successful and it starts working, uh, you know, other people are gonna try to copy it, right? And and there will be other forms of technology that come along and try to do similar things to what we're doing. And so, so at the same time, as we're sort of spreading this broad portfolio, we're also saying, how do we create one leading company in this space? Uh, you know, the, the CRISPR field had sort of famously fragmented early days into multiple companies, and then obviously all of the, the you know, legal outcomes that, that resulted from that. Um, you know, we had the luxury, at least, that base editing had really arisen in, in one lab, you know, up you know here in Harvard, um, and so you know it was a little easier to do. But we really basically said, okay, let, what are all the different sets of IP and and know how that we need to accumulate? And so we actually were under stealth for about a year while we did several other licenses and accumulated all the technology and team that we felt we needed to generate a real leadership position in this in this new emerging field with the with the real vision being let's have let's have one leading company for this new kind of gene editing rather than rather than many. And I think that also was it was an important set of decisions that have that have served us well.
0: What were some things that you thought about early that you didn't want to do? (laughs)
1: I think I like to joke that beam is kind of an all you can eat place. So almost always it's the things that we do want to do. Um, You know, I think we didn't want to get stuck on just one kind of delivery. For instance, um, we, we didn't want to, um, you know, get fragmented things like that. I think so. So a lot of these were kind of avoiding some of the mistakes of the past. Um, But honestly, mostly it was just really motivated by the sense of, of possibility. An opportunity. I mean, I think we really believed from day one that this was an important breakthrough in editing, that it was going to allow for the more, you know, elegant and precise, controlled editing that that we sort of envision when we think about gene editing, and that it could be really important for patients. And so, really, everywhere we looked, we saw ideas for how to use this. And so, from day one, we've just been driven to try to make as many of those possible as we can, uh, and continue to do more. Um uh, you know, a final piece of the puzzle for us was not just to get trapped into thinking about application using the first gen technologies, but also to go back and reinvest in the platform and, and continue to advance it. I mean, one of the insights here that is true across the whole field in genetic medicine, but it's certainly true for us, is we're really now in more of a kind of engineering mindset where you know in, in small molecules you sort of search at random through through chemical space until you get something where all your assays turn green, uh, and, and it, can, it, it can work, but it, it takes a while. Here, you really have the ability to sort of create a hypothesis, test a variant, try something out, see if it works relatively quickly, and then iterate on that. And, and you get this sort of loop where you can make very steady progress to continue in engineering these things. We use things like directed evolution, where we sort of drive a protein to evolve in a certain direction, we use structural biology where it's almost like Lego. You're literally looking at the parts and thinking about, well, what if I move the parts around? Uh, so, you know, computational biology is huge. So there's a variety of tools we have now where we can basically think about what is the what is the base editor doing today and what would we like it to do? And how do we get from here to there? And and so we're investing a lot in even the core de- technology development to keep pushing the envelope on what's possible. And, and so actually, you know, in the last couple of years we've published New versions of base editors that have that have been, you know, basically developed in our labs that are much more potent uh, and, and even more precise than, than those first gen versions. And and that's something we continue to do. And I think it's just a, a great feature of this whole field, which is which is that ability to sort of engineer these things and make them better and better as we industrialize this technology.
0: Okay, so whenever you have a broad platform like this, uh, you eventually you got to start somewhere and have a a proof of concept, a demonstration program. Maybe it becomes your uh, your first product um, or maybe not. But um, I I can see bringing that engineering mindset, as you describe it, to uh, a place like sickle cell beta thalassemia, where there uh, are those targets, a couple different approaches to to cure that disease. A lot of people have, um, have have worked on that uh, what did, what was it about that indication that appealed to you and made you think, Hey, we can come in here and and do something even better.
1: Yeah. I mean, an important point is we actually never had a process where we said, what's the first, and then said, let's make it sickle. We actually said we need to be everywhere. So we need to therefore go to hematology, uh, you know, immunology with cell therapy, liver, eye. And then in each of those areas, we said, what are the targets? So we almost did that that platform exercise four times, if you will. And and so we actually have sort of lead programs in each of those areas such that, you know, hopefully if we, if it works, it can help patients. And then it also de-risks the delivery to that organ. And then there's a whole on-deck target list that we could go forever. And I like to say that if any one of these therapeutic areas works, we have a great company. And then ideally, of course, they're all going to work and then we can do something that's really special. Now, it turns out that ex vivo programs go faster because there isn't a vectored engineer. And so there's no question that the, the, the hematology and the immunology programs go, go a little more quickly than the liver and the eye. And that's, that's indeed how it has worked out. So, but now to get to your point, so, so within hematology, we, we looked at a lot of different opportunities. And, you know, sickle is sort of, you know, famously been an incredibly exciting area, uh, you know, over the last five or six years, especially in the genetic medicine field. And, and so they therefore kind of unlike almost all of our other indications, it's also quite crowded. Um, you had Bluebird obviously, which, which, you know, reignited the interest in gene therapy with some amazing, um, you know, outcomes with their lentivirus therapy. You then had CRISPR and Vertex, which were moving into the clinic. And of course now have shown really exciting data using the kind of cutting based, uh, CRISPR. And, you know, we really debated whether we felt we had something to add to that actually. Um, but, you know, nonetheless, sickle cell disease is the most famous point mutation in all of genetics. I mean, we've, we've known about it for 40 years, what was causing this disease. Every single patient has the same single letter misspelling. And although it's thrilling that these other more indirect approaches can potentially, uh, you know, ameliorate the disease, we did feel we just had to do the science to see if we could help. And, and the more we did, the more we became convinced that actually we, you know, our editors looked like they were doing, you know, better edits, cleaner edits uh, than we were seeing elsewhere and, and could be potentially best in class option for patients. And so at the end of the day, you know, the, the decision rule is what does the science say is going to work and what is going to help patients? And, and then you do that. And so we, we've, we've gone really all in as a result. And so we have two approaches. One of them does the fetal hemoglobin upregulation uh, approach that others are doing, but we can do it very directly because we can basically edit the promoter regions of the fetal hemoglobin gene itself, uh, and with a single base change that we've identified that is you know gives us the most activity, uh, we turn them on very robustly. So we get higher levels of F than anyone else, and obviously do it without cutting. Uh, and then the second program, beam one hundred two, is uh, of course the the direct correction. So we're going in and we're literally changing the one disease causing letter. Uh, back to a normal copy and and, and doing it very efficiently over 80% editing. So so we think both are potentially curative, both are potentially best in class We're moving them forward. And at this point, really feel that we are going to provide a really important new option for patients with sickle as we all together as industry try to cure this this terrible disease. One-time treatment, cure. That's the thing. And so, you know, we, we are all humble about you know, using that word, um, uh, but but this is very much in the 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 part of our industry that is working on a future of, of one-time therapies, where a patient just has to focus on their disease uh, to to get the one regimen, hopefully, uh, and then that should be it. They really should not have the disease again. Uh, of course, there's been a lot of promise for that with gene therapy right? With, with, with AAV types of therapies. I think now we understand that depending on the tissue, um, are they really permanent or do they turn off over time or dilute over time? I think we're just learning that in real time, but I think there's been a better appreciation that that may or may not be truly lifelong with gene editing. It really is, um, you know, you basically are editing the genome in its normal context. Uh, the cell is not going to turn that off. It's, it's, it, it's, going to keep that around. And more importantly, then, if the cell ever divides, uh, it will pass the edit on to the daughter cells. And so the edit sort of travels with the cell throughout its life. And so, you know, as, as far as we can tell in every bit of data we've been able to accumulate, when, when these sort of gene editing outcomes occur, they are, they are truly durable uh, and permanent. So we, we really do believe that these are potential lifelong cures um, uh, that would be one-time therapies for patients.
0: And just for those who might not be familiar, these are in um, adult cells. So these are edits that are permanent in the person. They're not passed on to future generations. It's, these are not edits of germline cells like sperm and egg. That's another kind of editing that people talk about. Um, but that's not what you're doing.
1: Absolutely. Great point. And, and, and this is a really important distinction. So we are not editing the germline. Our edits do not pass on to the children uh, of anyone that we are editing well, in a way, and this is, the, this is the silver lining of the challenge of delivery that I mentioned, right? So, you know, you take a pill, you can get that, that chemical to go all over your body and really hit all of your cells. With these machines like base editors, you're not going to go to every cell in the body. At best, you might go to the entirety of an organ. Um, and so that is a challenge if I want to get to bigger places in the body. But it is a benefit when we talk about this because it really is going to be localized and so in some ways, you should think about this as we're, we're editing a diseased organ um, in either a child or an adult to cure that organ of the disease. So in the case of sickle cell, we're editing the, the bone marrow and, and the blood system, really not editing anything else. In the case of liver, obviously, we're trying to edit the liver, hepatocytes specifically, uh, the retina, of course, is another one, um, but certainly not at editing the whole body and, and definitely not editing the reproductive cells that would then be required to pass this on to, to future generations. And so ultimately, there, you know, society is going to have to sort of grapple with the implications of gene editing over time as it becomes wider and wider used. Um, but at least where we are today, and I think in this decade, it is, can we all agree that there are some very sick patients and kids? who need help. And these tools finally have the power to potentially provide that that medical option they've been missing. There is wide alignment that that is something we need to do. And we need to do it, of course, carefully, but but it is urgent that we bring these new solutions to, to these patients as quickly as we can
0: okay so I think you've established you got a lot of things going on a lot of opportunities you also have the benefit of coming along in the latter half of the 2010s when the biotech market is really strong and so you got a lot of different cards you can play from a business strategy and financing perspective you raise what two venture rounds pretty substantial and then boom you go public uh, and 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 I think you've raised, how much money have you raised at this point?
1: <laughs> I'm actually not sure off the top of my head. It's been a lot. I think it's around 800 million. Um, it, yeah, and, and this is so. For everything I love about the genetic medicine field that we're in, where we're it's all precision medicine. We know who to treat. If we can edit efficiently, it means that we are fundamentally reversing the thing that's causing the disease, which means it really ought to work. That should set up that rapid path to approval that we talked about. That I'd learned at Agios where we can sit with patients and and regulators and say, how do we get this to patients as quickly as we can? That's all incredible. Um, The downside is it is very capital intensive. It just takes a lot of people. It takes big facilities. Manufacturing is challenging. It takes a lot of money. And so so we knew from day one we would need a lot of access to capital to do this right and certainly to follow that strategy, the the breadth of the strategy that I described that that Pino and I were, were laying out. Um, and so, from day one, we did yeah, big Series A, big Series B, pretty early IPO. Although we had made a lot of progress as well, I think it was you know ultimately not that early. And then and then post IPO, we've been able to continue to, to raise money. So that's really important. Um, we also didn't lean on BD. It shows you how the playbook has changed since MyoGio stays a decade ago. Um, you know, a lot of the early CRISPR companies had done these sort of big deals with 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 pharma companies. We felt that they you know it would give up too much. Control and, and field space to them uh, to do that, and so we've really held off doing that, preferring to you know really fund the company with with equity to, for now, and then later you know we're kind of getting to that phase now where we have a better idea of what are we doing and what are we not doing, and now let's use you know target by target, let's do some more BD, and I think that is you know a, a better way to do it. But but back to your point, I mean no question, this has always been a big investment plan as we try to establish an integrated engine across editing, delivery, and manufacturing so that we can basically always have under one roof all the different components we need to make really compelling medicines for as many different applications as possible.
0: But now at the time of your IPO, you're preclinical, still preclinical with all of these programs, but because you're funded to the extent that you are, you're able to make these long-term strategic bets. Things like uh, diverse delivery technologies like lipid nanoparticle, like electroporation, like AAV, figuring out which one is the appropriate delivery mechanism for the cell type you're going after. And that could be ex vivo. It could be in vivo. I mean, you've got like, I'm imagining like a a whole checkerboard of things, uh, that you think about. And, uh, and, and you also have other things that other people want to do with your technology that's even beyond this ambitious scope, like VERVE. I mean, say, Kath Reason was a previous guest on this show talking about uh, a PCSK9 edit, a single nucleotide change. That's all you got to do to PCSK9 and one-time treatment to lower your cholesterol. I mean, so, <clears throat> but, but coming back to, like, the the position of strength this puts you in. I want to touch on this deal that you did, I think within the last year with Guide Therapeutics. So what did you see there? They had some delivery technology and you structured a deal in an unusual way. And I think it's something unique to this moment in time. Tell us that story.
1: Yeah, great. So um, there's been a lot of pretty interesting stories now. So, So the Guide we felt increasingly confident that base editing was working and that, you know, we wouldn't have gone public if we didn't, um, you know, it was clearly working on our hands. And again, the nice thing about these tools is we can do things in a cell that are, you know, clearly different than what anyone else can do with any tools. And so as soon as you've done that, you've created a lot of value because it's, it's self-evident that this is important. There's a lot of work to do. Still, you have to go in vivo, you've got to get the manufacturing, you've got to do the preclinical studies, you have to get to the clinic, but all of those steps are, were fairly well-precedented. And so I think it was possible for investors to say, actually, I can see a pretty straight line between the, the very different novel behavior of these at new editors and your team's ability to sort of show that and and a path to helping patients in the clinic. And, and then again, the precision medicine benefit is you don't have to wait until phase three to know if, it, if, if it's gonna work. In phase one, we really ought to be able to turn that card over and generate data that says, yes, this is a potentially important medicine, as has happened with CRISPR and Intelia and others. So that, I think, is why the access to capital has been there for us to to be so aggressive. So with Verve, um, sorry, with Verve, um, with with, uh, Guide, um, so we, as I said before, we were fairly um, focused on vanilla delivery at first, right? So we didn't want to take a lot of risk there, given that the novelty was in the payload. And so we were doing electroporation. And for lipid particles, which, again, Pino knew um, from the Moderna days, and we have um, another set of folks from Novartis as well. Um, really just focus on the liver, which is, of course, the the place where they go first. But in the last year, I think we have become, given the access to capital and and the the strength of the base setting platform, we have become more and more focused that actually, you know, we have got to also innovate on delivery. It isn't enough to be innovative in the editing and then live with the current state of the art on delivery because there's just too many places we can't go and those technologies just need to improve. And so we really started to do work on how do we make this better? And... um, there's a bunch of different parts of that initiative, but one of the big ones was where else can LNPs go—lipid nanoparticles—beyond the liver. And you know, at the same time, you've got, of course, Moderna with the vaccines and Pfizer and BioNTech, you know, showing that 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 mRNA and LNPs are here to stay. Uh, you know, many of us have been treated with them now. You 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 know, you've treated hundreds of millions of people around the world, and so this looks like a really robust platform. Isn't there some other place we can take it? And so.
0: Well, sorry to interrupt, but LNPs have been around for a long time. Alnylam used them with uh, siRNAs and others in that field too. But what you're dealing with is a larger package. And so that question is right: Can an LNP actually deliver something of this size consistently, efficiently? Yep.
1: So Alnylam had shown very well using LNPs for short oligos like RNAi, Um, but Moderna had done the work to show, okay, no, can we deliver a much, much larger mRNA and uh, you know thousands of kilobytes long? And and they did. And so then, you know, you come to CRISPR and you have to say, OK, well, I'm, I'm, to do this, I need to, to deliver an even slightly larger mRNA, but not that much larger, plus a guide RNA. And, and, you know, that turns out to not be that different. And so it has been it has been possible. But it is it is harder to get these LMPs to work correctly when you're delivering mRNA than people maybe originally anticipated. Um, but at this point, there are you know, several groups that are doing this successfully, including us. And we do think it is a, a great platform for the future because, again, LMPs are synthetic to manufacture, which means they will be much lower cost than other things. They're scalable. They are re unlike viruses, right? So you can potentially dose multiple times. Um, they are, you know, well-tolerated. You know, they're transient in the system. So they go in, create the editor, the editor edits, and then the whole thing washes out of your system and it's gone, you know, within a few days to a week. And so that, you know, we, we love that profile um, the problem is they mostly go to the liver. Uh, so this is fact to guide. And so and so, you know, but but it turns out, and we were seeing some data like this in our hands and then and then in others in the in the literature, that if you change the formulation, if you change the lipid, if you make certain other recipe changes, you can actually retarget them towards other kinds of tissues. And and so uh, guide therapeutics was was founded by uh, James Dahlman uh, and Corey Sago. Uh, Corey is actually now at Beam. Uh, James is a professor down at Georgia Tech. And they basically built a beautiful platform that allowed high throughput multiplex screening of LNPs in vivo. So you basically dose a whole bunch of LNPs into an animal. And then you can look at different tissues of interest and see which of the LNP recipes got me to this tissue versus that tissue. And and then that becomes a new lead. And you can kind of iterate from there back to that engineering principle. And so we are now very hard at work pushing the envelope on where LMPs can go well beyond the liver, thinking about blood cells, if you think about sickle, thinking about T-cells, if you think about CAR-T and immunology, thinking about the brain, muscle, lung. These are all of interest. And of course, in some of these experiments, we're screening all of them at the same time. So we're very bullish about the future, but I think it, is, it has become a new theme at Beam of how much we're investing now in the future of delivery as much as keeping investing in the future of, of editing.
0: Delivery is super important for going all the way back to the history of oligos and uh, basically all new modalities. It comes down to this and it's often not fully appreciated in the early days. Uh, but but so anyway, you saw this thing with guide that you liked and, um, you know, you, you got a lot of cash, but you want to be careful in how you spend it. And so you structure this deal in an unusual way as a development stage biotech company. You you uh, you buy that company in ca- in your stock, by and large.
1: Um, <laughs> and and the, the investors in this little company accepted that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, so basically what, what, what Guide had done is they had made all this progress on, um, you know, the basic sort of formulations. And suddenly they were delivering not just siRNAs but now mRNAs and, and to different tissues. And so they were starting to say, well, wow, you know, now I really need to build downstream process development and editing and, you know, all these components that we had just built. And we simultaneously had built all those things for the liver, but we hadn't yet gone about building that platform to push the boundaries of, of what the technology can do beyond the liver. And, and so it was just a beautiful sort of match made in heaven in terms of the, the sort of complementarity of our interests. But, but they are very long term in their focus, as are we. Uh, and so we, we did structure this deal sort of using equity, uh, you know, sort of focused on the future, um, now, that said, it, it also has, has some different flavors. There's an upfront, but there's also a lot of earnouts that, that grow and grow as, as the technology works. And you know, I think that's that's obviously great and aligns our incentives you know, with them to, to make as big an impact as we can. But I'd say it really comes back to just the synergy and the teams and having a really shared vision that, you know, we just somebody had to put together the kind of leading effort that would marry the best of gene editing with the best of delivery, specifically in this LMP world, at least, um, so that we can, under one roof, create as many of the right medicines as possible. And and I think that's very much how it's worked out so far. And we're we're, thrilled with the progress and doubling down as we speak.
0: And are you bringing this and some of your other delivery technologies together in this big manufacturing investment in North Carolina? And, and and why what what's the strategy there? Why are you doing that? And t- keep keeping that under your own roof and not going to contract manufacturers.
1: Yeah, well, we, I mean, we're certainly a contract manufacturers for now because as we go to the clinic, that that's just where we're at, and that's going very well. Um, but you know, similarly to the delivery story, where you know we have the novel editing. We're frustrated with the state of delivery and we say, you know what, we just need to do this ourselves and do it right. And so that's what we've been building. The third leg of that stool is manufacturing. And and it is still true that, again, because these are very complex medicines, there isn't a mature CRISPR or gene editing or or cell therapy manufacturing industry. It's coming. A lot of people are investing in that. Um, And and I think if you fast forward five or 10 years, we might make a different decision because there might be a lot more mature ecosystem out there. But for now. These are very specialized. It takes a lot of know-how. And to a certain extent, that know-how is proprietary and is some of the value of Beam. Like we have incredible people here who are working really hard to to figure out how do you make these things at scale? How do you make them high quality? You know, how do we turn this interesting technology into a new class of medicines? And so ultimately, we just felt it would be much more efficient to, again, have that under one roof. So we are building a facility in North Carolina in Research Triangle Park. It's 100,000 square feet. Uh, it is going to be, I think, the biggest uh, dedicated facility in the gene editing industry. And, you know, one of the things, if you think about the diversity of the kinds of products we're going to make, that I was nervous about, but it turns out we, we can manage is, is, well, how many different kinds of things do we need to make? We need to make cells, you know, autologous cells, allogeneic cells. We need to make mRNA. We need to make lipid particles. We need to make guides but it turns out you know in modern manufacturing you really can have these sort of flexible use spaces where you basically can you know convert them from one to the other fairly easily and so so it, you know it just ultimately when we looked at it it was it was it, w- it was possible to build one facility that we do think you know even given the uncertainty about how our portfolio will evolve um, can manufacture all the different things that we have to make and so we're growing that team down in North Carolina we we broke ground this year already that'll be operational by 2023 And then, you know, as much as we love our external CDMO partners, boy, it'll be great to have, you know, the beam team, you know, capable of, you know, on a given week doing a manufacturing run. And then if that manufacturing run fails, we can do it again the next day um, and just control end to end, you know, the delivery of these medicines to, to as many patients as possible.
0: There's a speed advantage, but there's also that competitive advantage long term in that know-how, the, those those recipes, the, <laughs> the nuances that may not get published and um, how you make these things. Um, uh, OK, so John covered a lot of ground here, but I, I want to ask you a little bit about the public uh, facing nature of the whole CRISPR and gene editing conversation. I, I think, you know, people have. Quite a few people have heard about CRISPR, and there's, you know, there's a popular book Walter Isaacson wrote uh, with Jennifer Dowden as the star, and she's won her Nobel. and she's become something of a public spokesperson and a very good one for both the science and some of the ethical concerns that come from this. Uh, I, I see less of that happening at the industry level. and i I worry, and I think you'd probably do too, about some of the, Misinformation that we see out there that's bubbled up with the COVID vaccines, that says the mRNA is going to alter people's DNA. Well, it, it doesn't. But uh, a gene editing cure for sickle cell actually does alter people's DNA. Uh, and so, uh, you know, people are going to have a lot of questions. They're going to have a lot of fears and concerns. And I wonder, you know, how do how do you think about this and how do you think the industry can get ahead of this and do a better job of uh, engaging with the public in a two-way fashion?
1: Yep. Uh, so I, I think it's a really important conversation and it's one that we're increasingly focusing on um, because it is going to take time. I think it's going to take time for people to understand this, to get comfortable with it. And it is but we have to do it because back to my point that I do think that the use of these tools is only going to expand over time. We, you know, look at our own pipeline. We're obviously starting with, um, you know, very focused genetic diseases, sickles on the larger end. Some of them are smaller. Um, but over time we're going to be doing, you know, bigger, more, more, more prevalent diseases you know, with things like Verve. We're going to prevent heart attack, um, we're doing a deal with a palace we're targeting the, the complement pathway these, these are these are much more complicated biology situations regenerative medicine is going to become important so so almost like an expanding circle of application is going to happen over time and and so given that it will touch more and more people and and we need to help them understand what's happening um, I've often thought about you know to contrast this a little bit if you think about what happened with the GMO foods right um, such a backlash and and the, but the reason is is because people it hit them all at once and you think about you're going after food which it, which it touches everybody and 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 the benefit of a gmo food over a non-gmo food is fairly abstract right and it's hard to communicate and so that was like the worst of all worlds because it's something that touches everybody you have kind of a, a instinctive reaction like don't you know don't touch my food and it was hard to understand the benefits to date with genetic medicines we've been on the opposite side of it which has been which has been good because it allows the, this technology to evolve. Whereas I said, you're, you're really only treating a, a very sick person. And believe me, their whole family is saying, please help us. You know, we're, we're dying to, to understand this technology and we understand th- what the, the impact it can have for this person. And so there really isn't a lot of ethical questions there. Um, but, but, but as we expand the use of these tools, we'll hit it. And and in, and, in fact, I think that, you know, in some ways, the mRNA vaccines shows that, you know, we, we went from zero to 60 overnight because we took what was still a cottage industry of mRNA technologies and suddenly you know we're dosing the entire world. And so it shows you, you know, when these things get ahead of you, you know, some of that some of that misunderstanding can really can really come into play. So so anyway, so given where I believe gene editing is taking us as an industry and as a as a society, I think we absolutely need to engage in those conversations. So the answer is just really listening. I mean we you know we're reaching out to patient groups Constantly, um, there, there have been efforts to sort of engage with government uh, as much as possible so the lawmakers and regulators understand what we're doing. Um, I will say I think the FDA is quite sophisticated in this area. Um, so they understand what's happening. And then the role of physicians, um, you know, to really lead the way and help, you know lay out, you know what are the costs and benefits of using technology like this so that patients can really understand that. Um, You know, I think all of those are going to have a role to play. Um, And and even, you know, books about pioneers in in gene editing, you know, whether it be Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier winning the Nobel or things that sort of raise the profile of what we're doing. Um, I think all of that has to help uh, as we sort of raise awareness. And then, you know, the the most important thing that will help speed understanding and comfort here is just that we do this right, That, that the first applications are done carefully and safely, and that they do indeed have a, a, a profound impact on on patients' lives. That will, by far, be the most important aspect that that helps people understand this and and embrace it.
0: But these things are coming. They're coming fast. I think I heard you say at an investor conference that you think we're going to cure everybody with sickle cell in ten years. Now, maybe that's aspirational, but I think if. I mean, seeing the biology that you describe, I mean, I think that actually is possible if we were able to expand access the way it ought to be. Once you have this kind of treatment, so that that's a whole other conversation about about access. Uh, but I think you know, ten years is not that long in this industry. You know, it took twenty years to develop monoclonal antibodies and twenty years for oligos. Uh, this is happening quickly.
1: Well, and this is the other part that I think we we have to be very uh, proactive about, right? So, so taking sickle as an example, you know, the initial wave of sickle programs will use um, transplants to get the edited cells into the body to then take over and replace the older cells. Those transplants are fairly harsh, and, and they're toxic, and they use, you know, chemo, like busulfan, to, to, to make that happen. So that's going to be a good option for some patients who are, who are very severe, but not for all patients. And so, you know, we certainly are not resting on our laurels. So we are also working hard to fix that conditioning regimen, make it less toxic. And then ultimately, even to look at are there ways to deliver the sickle editor in vivo, so that you don't even need the transplant. And so but you know, one way or the other through those those sort of next generation regimens, we will make this as both patient friendly, non-toxic and cost-effective as possible. And that's the work that has to happen for us to expand access to this and feasibility so you can treat all patients, certainly in the US, in Europe, but also around the world. You think about Africa, you think about Asia, you think about other places where there is a large sickle population, large beta thal population. And you know we have to make the technology better and better to drive the, the, the affordability, the access, the scalability of what we're doing and make it you know as, as much like a normal medicine that is that is well tolerated and easy to, to administer as possible, I think if we do that work and you know sickle is just one example, really almost all of our indications have versions of this um, then you know that the full benefits of, of this technology can be realized.
0: well, it's an important conversation. it's an ongoing conversation. Maybe I'll have to have you back on in five or ten years and see how it went. John Evans. Thank you so much for joining me on The Long Run. Thanks, Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.